So I have a confession to make. I love, I savor, I revel in hating the major party candidate for whom I will not vote in November. <laughs> I follow the Facebook posts that are that prove clearly this person is a liar and amoral and always has been and always will be. I laugh at those nasty cartoons and digs, and I savor the community of like-minded friends. I just revel in it, I have to say, until I look at the person I live with, who's sitting right there, um, and he feels the same abhorrence for the other candidate I plan to vote for. He believes all that malarkey that this person's a liar and amoral and going to destroy our country and clearly has not seen the light. <laughs> and it used to be we would trust the other to mail our early ballot. <laughs> when I discovered that he didn't agree with me even about the red light cameras we had to vote on a few years ago, we now vote and mail separately. <laughs> You know, it's, it's so much fun. But I discover that it's a little bit like savoring a really bad grudge. You know, you chew on it, and that flavor of righteous indignation is so sweet. But eventually, it goes flat, and the sugar hurts your teeth. And you discover holding a grudge against somebody just puts up a wall against, between you and them really doesn't serve you in the long run. And that's sort of how it's been right now in the political sphere for me. Most of the people I work with are on my husband's team. And I have to be really careful with patients, of course, unless they agree with me. Um, and I find what scares me, and you've probably experienced this, is just how we cannot speak to each other. Couldn't we speak across the divide better before? But now it is just so clear and so sharp and so black and white. And how do we listen to each other? How do we reach across? How can there be any um, meeting of common ground? So I've decided I need a better practice. I need to do something other than just enjoying, which I haven't given up completely. No one knows what I do in my mind on Facebook, right? But um, I have to come up with a better practice to try to cross that divide. Uh, I haven't perfected it, so I can't try it out at work yet, but um, that's one thing I, I need a better practice for. And the other is um, the subject of the lunch you've been invited to talk about, all the violence that's been happening this summer, uh, has hit, I think, all of us pretty hard in different ways. Uh, but it just seems constant and unending um, and I'll turn around and I'll miss something else. Last night, a police shooting in Milwaukee. And when I hear that phrase, I think, did the police shoot or were the police shot? Because both has been happening over and over. And each one of us has a different connection to some of these shootings. Uh, whenever I hear about something in Istanbul or um, Ankara, I think of my nephew who's studying in Turkey. And um, I lived in Belgium just before we moved here. My husband was Army, and we, we lived there. And unfortunately, because I worked a lot on 
the NATO chapel and had babies, I didn't go to Brussels enough. The one place I know well in Brussels is Zaventum Airport, which was bombed. So when that was bombed, you know, I could picture what had happened. But each one of us has been gut-punched by this in different ways, right? Um, And I want to figure out what is the way to respond, what is the better practice. So I went back to something I go to whenever there's a mass shooting. I've talked about it a couple times this summer. Poor Wally has to hear it again. But I found that it's the one thing people have held on to. I talked about it in Silver City in June, and when I went back last week, a man repeated verbatim what I talked about, forgetting I'd said it. That is like the best compliment. (laughs) And he grew up Mennonite. Uh, This is about the Amish. Um, It's about the school shooting, you might remember, that happened almost 10 years ago, October 2nd, 2006, in Nickel Mines, Pennsylvania. And the amazing thing that stunned the world in addition to the horror of what happened when uh, Charles Roberts, a milk delivery man, not Amish but known to the community, went to an Amish school, let all the boys go and the teacher and the teacher's aide and some pregnant women who were visiting. He let them all go, but he kept the young girls. He shot 10, five miraculously survived. Um, And he started shooting when the police came a lot sooner than he expected, and he shot himself as well. So there were six deaths, five girls ranging from seven to 13, um, one of whom stood up and said, shoot me first. Um, Sorry. (laughs) Uh, But he also died that day. And that's, that's one thing I think I always have trouble with. How do you respond to the death of this shooter? You know, do you talk about it? Do you not? Sandy Hook doesn't really talk about it. Um, But what the world was really struck by was the incredible incredible forgiveness by this, the Amish community. By that evening, people had arrived at the house of Marie Roberts and had brought toys for her children and were wondering how she must be doing because she'd lost her husband in this horrible way. And how were the children facing this? And this kept on going. Um, The funerals for the young girls took place soon after, and all the buggies went by the Roberts' house on the way to the cemetery. 30 Amish and 40 non-Amish went to Roberts' funeral. And again, um, Marie felt that they stood there in a line, their faces covered because they didn't want their um, image in the media, this is not something Amish like, uh, but they, she felt they were protecting her from the row of press. And then 12 days later, there was a meeting between uh, the family of Charles Roberts and the, the Amish families um, in the community, those who'd lost children, those who were, you know, just everybody came together to meet at a fire station. And of course, first the Roberts, uh, his father and then father-in-law spoke, Um, both crying, apologizing, reaching out to the Amish community, not understanding how this had happened, how this depressed man had reacted this way to his sorrow over losing two children in the past. And um, then Amish responded, and one was the father of one of the girls who died. 
And he stood up, and there was this pause, waiting to see what he'd say. And he said, I knew you before. You know, you picked up our milk. We met you. We knew you. But I didn't know you very well. Whenever you are ready, you are invited to my house. I want you to come. I want you to have dinner with us. I want to see you. And almost all the other Amish were were nodding. That was the right thing to do, to welcome in. Their kind of forgiveness um, is, is quite special. When you forgive, you might not be able to reconcile. But they have this almost aggressive forgiveness that goes for reconciliation, that goes to befriend the very people who may have hurt them. A year later, the first responders were invited to a picnic um, so another thing they did, and you, you may remember this, 10 days later they decided to raise the school where this had happened. I have a friend who covered both Chechnya and the nickel mine shooting, and she said, you know, in Chechnya, where there was a shooting, they kept the building with all the bullet holes to remind everybody of what had happened. And in uh, Pennsylvania, they built a new school, a little more secluded, a little safer, with the gates wide open, though, a different floor plan, so the children didn't have to be re-traumatized, and so there wouldn't be a monument to this event. The Amish don't build churches. They don't believe in human monuments. It's God's presence is alive in simple, everyday, ordinary life. But they have a history of this kind of forgiveness um, that they have practiced for more than 500 years, When they broke off from other Protestant reformers in um, the 1500s in Switzerland, they did so because they believed baptism is something you choose. It shouldn't be imposed on you as a baby. You claim it, you choose it for yourself. So since all of them had been baptized as babies, they were re-baptized. So they are called Anabaptists. Um, And they were pursued for that and hunted down and killed. And Um, A a little while later in the 1600s, a lot like our ancestors in the Congregational and Unitarian faiths, the pilgrims, they found a safe place in the Netherlands. Uh, And things were getting a little easier for them. So one of their elders wrote down something called the Martyr's Mirror, which is 1,500 pages about all the people who had suffered, but stood up nonviolently to what they had faced. You may have heard the story of, um, it's Willem, ah, Dirk Willems. He um, went home to visit his family. He had been rebaptized earlier in the 1500s, and he had word that the government was coming for him to make him recant his baptism. So he ran away. And when he ran away, he crossed creaky ice, but he got to the other side, And a thief catcher who was pursuing him fell through. He was free, but he knew he couldn't let the man die in the ice. So he went back and helped him get out. And then the man captured him, they tortured him, and executed him two weeks later. There's a story of um, Willem Jantz, who was rushing to Amsterdam to support his friend Peter Peters Beckian, who was about to be executed for the same thing. And he wanted to support his friend. He was late, so he, cl- he climbed up on a piece of 
statuary and yelled, contend valiantly, brother, contend valiantly, at which point they captured him, tortured him, and executed him on the same spot two weeks later. And when I was here before, I talked about minority faiths in Cochise County, and I realized you can read statistics, they're helpful, you can read about faiths, but the really important way to get to know another faith is through the people who practice it, through you know, going to service with them, watching how they live, seeing how it permeates their lives. A good friend of mine in seminary is Mennonite. Um, she was too progressive to go to a Mennonite seminary, but she discovered a progressive Mennonite church, and much to her shock, she married a, a fellow Mennonite, and the wedding was amazing. They had um, ancient family quilts. Both their families could sing in German in parts together to sing all the hymns. And when we played volleyball, everyone stopped if a child came on the court. And when I'd yelled, oh, shoot, they looked at me like I'd been swearing. <laughs> um, and one thing I've learned from her is about that martyr's mirror. You know, that's kind of a strange thing, but it... It gives them this, you know, the Mennonite and the Amish community that branched off from this, the same branch, um, it gives them this strength in the face. There are people. There's this mirror of other people who stood up. But it's something they do now. It's a forgiveness that they model and they do now. So um, one grandfather was standing by the caskets as people came to visit the girls who'd been shot. Um, they were visited in their individual homes. One home had two daughters the Millers, um, and the grandfather pointed out to his grandchildren, we should not think evil of this man. And um, there's a wonderful book called Think No Evil by a man who grew up in that community who was Amish, uh, has stopped being Amish, but councils in that community speaks Pennsylvania Dutch, is close to them. Um, and, and he pointed out that they model this his parents modeled it to him when he was in his early 20s. His brother, Sonny, crested the hill um, of a nearby spot on his motorcycle, and a truck just didn't see him coming and killed him instantly. And the family, his parents, who were still old Arda Amish, reached out to, Sonny, to Sonny's truck-driving killer and invited him out to eat. And every year... They would eat together a meal, and then they would go to his nursery and pick out a plant that he would give them. So every year there's this little symbol of new life. They, and he said, if they hadn't modeled this for me, I might have sunk into unforgiveness and bitterness and not moved on. There's something very powerful about this forgiveness, and for me, the crux of it is trying to make your enemy a friend trying to see them as human, remembering that the family who's lost that person is also suffering. Everything that the Amish did to love your enemy changes you, and it gives you a better practice, I think. It's also devious and really effective. It's, exa <laughs> it's exactly what nonviolent resistance is all about. And it's doing something I, I've discovered is called um, non-complementary behavior. If you want to hear a great description of this, listen to the Invisibilia podcast called 
flipping the script from July 15th, but it talks about using non-complementary behavior to shift things. So um, this psychologist and professor, Christopher Hopwood, talks about it, and he says in, in an article talking about relationships, if your wife comes out really grumpy and rude and mean, the complementary response would be to be grumpy and rude and mean or just cold-shouldered or, you know, not to respond. The non-complementary shocking behavior is to go do the laundry, make her bed, give her flowers, and it disarms somebody. You have to use it carefully. So it's non-complementary, and it works two ways. One is if I'm cold to you, you're cold back. I'm warm to you, you're warm back. Or a slightly different version is if I'm dominant with you, you are submissive. Or if I'm submissive, you kind of dominate. That's also a complementarity. Um, and when you're a counselor, using that in the beginning works a little. It builds trust. If somebody is sort of dominant, you kind of let them dominate. But if you want to change them, you have to use the non-complementary behavior. And we remember all those wonderful protests that happened here in the 1960s, that happened in India decades before, where people stood up nonviolently to violence. There's a lot of violence that's hard to see, structural violence. You know, it's easy to see when people march and protest. It's not so easy to see generations of Jim Crow laws. You can show the pictures of separate water coolers, but it's a lot harder to show the violence. So when people stood up nonviolently, um, Martin Luther King and his group carefully selected loose cannons who might explode. You know, if you saw the movie Selma that came out, or you lived through Selma, you understand that you need people who, when you send in children and peaceful protesters, respond with dogs and water cannons. So the whole world sees that violence made manifest. When you put out non-complementary responses. It can be dangerous, but it can be world-changing. So to turn around and love your enemy is so against everything we've ever known or believed. It's, it's subversive and tricky. It also changes you and makes you more compassionate and able to forgive. I'm going to read a piece of, um, from Luke, not because I think it's really important to hammer you with Christian scripture, <laughs> but because Jesus may have been the first or one of the very first to start this non-complementary action. Um, and he influenced Tolstoy, who influenced Gandhi, who influenced Martin Luther King Jr. Um, so from Luke 6, I say to you, listen, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. If anyone strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from anyone who takes away your coat, do not withhold even your shirt. Give to anyone who begs from you. And if anyone takes away your goods, do not ask for them again. Do to others as you would have them do to you. There's a wonderful book I just discovered by, um, I don't even know how to pronounce her last name. It's Cynthia Bourgeau, if you say it the French way, but it might be the way we murder French-Canadian names. It might be Bourgeault, I don't know. 
But she wrote a book called The Wisdom of Jesus, um, and it's Transforming Heart and Mind, A New Perspective on Christ and His Message. But it looks at Jesus as a wisdom teacher, as one who came to open up heart and mind to a whole new consciousness, an awareness that we are interconnected, that we should constantly love, that all humans, no matter background or belief or connection, are sacred. And so he will use proverbs, wise teachings, as parables, things that flip everything upside down. One person called it spiritual hand grenades. He tosses out something that seems, so the golden rule, do us to others as you would have them do unto you. He pushes further, not only that, but love your enemies. And it's also really practical. And I found it helpful. I didn't know I was doing that. I'm not that scriptural. But um, um, when someone came up to me at church who had been a linebacker and knew that his weight and size had power, he started yelling and screaming at me about the hymns I'd chosen. You are going to scare people away if they can't sing hymns they know. And I, I looked at him. I stood my ground. I said, okay, so tell me more. And you could just see this big man deflate. No one had ever just stood there and asked for more. It was a tiny little bit of a non-complimentary response. Uh, but I love that idea. If someone curses you, you bless them. Hasn't that been effective for you sometimes? You know, your children say, I hate you. Well, I still love you. Kind of takes their power away. Um, And again, if anyone strikes you on one cheek, you don't strike back. You offer the other. And it confuses them. There's some theory about how you then have to slap with your left hand or your right hand. But anyway, um, and it dishonors you. But you know, this is the idea that we are moved to love to another level and to do that. And I, I take this little scriptural nugget as, as kind of a, a practical way to do things. So I have come up with a new practice for myself. I hope you'll go to the lunch and talk about other ways you have responded to everything that's happening. But for me, I will try to love my enemies, even people who are voting the wrong way. Um, And when they curse me, I will bless them. When they abuse me, instead of running away or muttering under my breath, I will hold them in the light. I will try to figure out who they are. I will try to befriend them. I will try to love them instead of demonizing them. And I think that has a chance of really making a huge difference. I'm going to finish with the last, uh, the one line that isn't in today's uh, hymn, um, Love Will Guide Us, is a folk song by Sally Rogers. And one of the verses I say to all of you, because I really believe this, and I hope if you have other ways to stand up to polarization, to stand up to violence, please speak them out. And the, the verse is, you are like no other person. What you can give, no other can give. To the future of our precious children. To the future of this world where we live. Thank you.